You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 143. I'm Victor, and joining me is Neil. Victor, how are you? Brilliant. How are you, Neil? Doing all right. I want to ask you, have you gotten your iPhone 8 yet? <laughs> no. You still on the SE? I am, yeah. I'm going to get an iPhone X um, the end of this month, assuming that I can get it when the pre-orders go on sale. Okay. I had an 8 Plus show up at my house this morning. And nice. I have, I have yet to open it up. It's not even mine. This is this is what happens is um, people who, who travel a lot and aren't necessarily available to get shipped uh, get packages shipped to them will end up shipping things to me and, and I'll deliver it to them when I see them. So it's like a big tease to you that you get this thing there and you can't uh, even use it. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. And and this one, the person said, you know, can you just open it and check it out and make sure it's okay? What 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 is there to check out? <laughs> it's there. And, and there's a phone in the box. Yes. What am I What am I to do? Put my SIM card in, which, and then reset it after. What What's the point? Yeah. Right. So there is an iPhone eight in my eight plus actually in my house, and it's not mine. Oh well. <laughs> but there is a rumor that says that Apple is cutting iPhone 8 production orders in half. That uh, the, the rumor suggests that 8 and 8 plus production orders are being dropped by 50% for November and December, which if true, and, and that's a big caveat, mm-hmm. would be the earliest such cut in all of iPhone history. Now, we, we've talked in the past about the sources of these kinds of things and how when it comes to speculative rumors about future hardware, that trusting supply chain sources isn't necessarily the most reliable way to go. Yeah. But in this case, we're talking about existing hardware that is shipping. Right. In which case, supply chain sources could be more credible, would you say? Not really. Oh, okay. Never mind then. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, supply chain stuff is always a... Uh, it is one very small part of a very big picture that that you're trying to look at, you know? And sometimes it does lead to some good information, but a lot of times it's kind of missing the forest for the trees. You know, uh, they're saying that this is the first time ever that uh, Apple has cut iPhone production so early. You know what else is the first time ever uh, that Apple launches a second iPhone model a month and a half after they just debuted one? So we're in uncharted territory here uh, for all we know. Apple has planned for this from the beginning. They knew that there was going to be a surge of iPhone 8 orders at launch, and then it would cool off um, before the iPhone 10. And then they've planned for that accordingly. I, I, I don't see this as that big of a deal. We know that at launch and first quarter, iPhone sales are at their highest because it's new and people buy. And then you tend to have more casual uh, phone consumers who are in line for an upgrade or who... Uh, just broke and cracked their phone and just need one or just get fed up and they just walk into a store and they go, what's cheap? You know, so <laughs> iPhone sales peak at launch uh, uh, in the in the following quarter into the holiday and then they taper off throughout the year. This is nothing new. Um, Apple probably saw a lot of iPhone 8 sales launch weekend and then they tapered off afterwards and then they'll probably pick back up as as Christmas gets started. So I, I don't read into this kind of stuff too much. And Apple doesn't break down sales of iPhones by model. And there was a report recently that said that the iPhone 7 may actually be outselling the iPhone 8. And if it is, my response to that is, who cares? <laughs> uh, 
Um, I don't think that it really matters that much. I think that the technology on these devices has gotten good enough that we're at a point where any iPhone that you buy when you go into the store is going to be a great phone and will be a great phone for years. Apple is well ahead of the competition in terms of hardware, processing power, capabilities, software, the total package. Yeah, this um, is a huge year-on-year year update over the iPhone 7. Yeah, it's... <sighs> Even if all you notice is the camera, yeah, the camera of the 8 Plus is miles better than the camera of the 7 Plus. And the camera of the 7 Plus is still great, so... No kidding. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it matters what iPhones Apple sells. If you're a fan, if you're rooting for Apple, I don't think that matters. I still think they're going to sell a boatload of phones. I think that um, the same thing has already happened with the iPad, where the entry-level model is affordable and great. And, you know, you still see that with iPhone SE. Like you said, I'm still using mine. It's a great phone. I think that uh, top to bottom, the iPhone lineup has never been as good as it has been. You still want a headphone jack. You still got two phones in the lineup that are there for you. You, you know, have options. And I think it's a good thing for consumers. I think that the iPhone lineup has never been more competitively priced. It's never been more capable. It's never given you more options. Anybody complaining about the performance of the iPhone 8 or the price of the iPhone 10 is not seeing the big picture. And I think anybody really focusing on this report that says that Apple's cutting iPhone 8 orders supposedly uh, is not looking at the big picture either. I don't think that it matters. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think all the indicators are that people are ordering the iPhone they want. And, and if they're getting the 8 or 8 Plus, if they're getting it and they're happy with it, if they're getting the 10, like you are, they're, they're waiting a little bit longer. Yeah. But none of this suggests that there's, there's any uh, sky is falling problem. <laughs> I mean, they're probably making, oh my God. they're probably making 50% <laughs> margins on every phone they sell, if not more. Um, and they're going to sell a lot of them. And, you know, it's Wall Street has taken, thankfully, a somewhat longer approach to it. They're saying, you know, if Apple can't catch up with iPhone 10 demand uh, this quarter, then, you know, it just pushes the sales into next year. And I hope that that mentality continues because, you know, I don't invest in Apple. I don't, I just, as an observer. I do. <laughs> and that's fine. But as an observer of this stuff, uh, as somebody who, you know, tries to report on it objectively and, and stay at, above the fray, so to speak, um, you know, it, it gets a little silly, this constant need for growth with a company that is just making money hand over fist. They have like $265 billion in cash. It's like at some point you can't grow at the same rate or grow at all. At some point you have to find new ways and new avenues and whatever. Well, well, well Neil, Neil, we just need everyone to buy two. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> this like this Wall Street investor constant growth thing is just it's insane. Well, it's to unsustainable me. at some. No, point. it's not, and it's it's stupid. Apple's doing great. They're selling a ton of phones. People are happy. It's not like if the iPhone eight doesn't sell as much as the iPhone seven did last year, even regardless of the fact the iPhone ten is coming. It's not like people are saying, "Ah, oh, well, you know, not impressed by the iPhone eight. I'm going to go get the Google Pixel 2. You know, the number of people yeah, that's, doing that. That's is, not how the decision process works usually, is it? <laughs> no, not, not right now. There, there's not like a hugely compelling reason to switch from the iPhone for the vast majority of consumers that are already on the iPhone. Cer certainly, I'm sure there are people that switch from iPhone to Android. But by and large, the statistics show that most people are going the other direction. And that's that's good for Apple's business. Yeah.
This has been a big year in terms of national disasters and and uh, weather emergencies. Right. There's been Hurricane Harvey, uh, Hurricane there there was Irma. There are the uh, the wildfires in California, mm-hmm. the earthquakes in Mexico, the earthquakes in Mexico, uh, the the damage to Puerto Rico, the hurricane that just uh, you know, grazed Ireland. Mm-hmm. Right, this has been a year of it. Especially this season. Yeah. And former Verizon lawyer, uh, Ajit Pai, who is the, the head of the FCC, has Speaking of natural disasters. <clears throat> I, was, I was trying to be a little more subtle, but I was going the same well, direction. Well, when you start off with Verizon, uh, that's not a good start anyhow. So, to be fair. It, it was a great start. <laughs> transcends. <laughs> it was a fantastic mm-hmm. start. So, <sighs> that was the segue. Right. The... Uh, the, the former Verizon lawyer and chairman of the FCC, mm. Ajit Pai, has been calling for Apple to turn on FM radio functionality <laughs> in, on the basis that in, in a disaster, in an emergency, that FM radio is an excellent way for people in the middle of that emergency to receive information uh, that could save their lives. Mm-hmm. And he has called not once but twice for Apple to enable this functionality. Apple has never had this functionality enabled on any iPhone they've ever sold. They had it on an iPod Nano. And it, it, it did ship on an iPod right. Nano where the headphone cable acted as the antenna mm-hmm. yep. for the FM yep. radio. And the chip was in the device, yeah. And the chip was in the device. And and the National Association of Broadcasters is also joining this call for Apple to enable this functionality. Well, to have a good t- antenna, you need to have distance on it. It's just the way antennas work. You think of the old rabbit ears that you could still use to get now HD over well, there, or in cars they the have. Way, the way antenna, the way an antenna functions is that an antenna is a multiple of the wavelength of the frequencies that are are being received, and so the antenna length is mathematically related to the frequency band. Right. So that's why you and, have to have something plugged in the iPod Nano to have it work. It, it, the, the size of the device alone is not enough to get a good signal on FM. Right. But more important than that is that the iPhone well, 7 and iPhone 8... Yeah, I was going to get to that. <laughs> it's, do not include any chip that has an FM radio inside You know what? The this is this, this like... <laughs> We as as a, as a as humanity have become such a group of like self entitled babies, <laughs> like oh, no, it's on. true, and I'm guilty of this too. Come you know, on. like we all want. I was talking a few weeks ago with a very nice woman on Twitter who was asking me. Um, um, I was I, I put out something. I said I'm working on an Apple Watch Series Three review. Uh, what do you want me to address? And this woman was really upset that the Apple Watch Series 3 with LTE only works with U.S. bands, uh, LTE bands, and that she couldn't travel internationally and switch carriers. And she could not wrap her head around the fact that it was a physical constraint. And I, I we went back and forth for a long time, and I tried my hardest to explain it. She's like, she's like, oh, you know, Apple must be saving it for next year, or they're looking to get more money. They want people to buy two watches and, like, all these conspiracy theories and stuff. And it's like, no, it's just... You have an antenna, you have a small wearable device, you can only fit so many bands in there. That's just the way that the physics of it work. So what Apple did was they created a number of regions where they sell the watch. And if you buy a US Canada watch, it only works in the US and Canada. That's it. You can't use it in Europe. And until we start to defy the laws of physics or come up with better technologies, that's just the way that it's going to be. 
and that is it. And you know, but there, you're so used there is to some crossover between bands between different yes, regions, obviously, and. And, and so this is something it, that it Apple was, has... You know, in the old days, if I bought the Verizon phone, for example, the Verizon phone around iPhone 5 timeframe had the bands that were better compatible with the bands in Europe than the AT&T mobile variant. But didn't work phone. with AT&T in the United States. There were two different phones sold. Uh, no, no, no. Worked with AT&T in the United States, did not work with T-Mobile in the United States because T-Mobile has an entirely different well, frequency yeah. band. <laughs> I mean, it used to be that there were multiple phones. The point I'm making, there were multiple phones sold in the United States for different bands. Now Apple has gotten to a point where they can sell one phone and it gets all the bands within the United States. But even the latest phone doesn't get the newest uh, LTE 4G band from T-Mobile. So <laughs> this is a constant struggle. Mm. What? I think it does. No, get it does not get the latest T-Mobile band. We wrote stories on it. There's a oh, new T-Mobile band that just true. launched within the last year, and Apple's iPhone 8 does not support it. Is that the 700? I don't remember what, I don't remember what the specific. Because that's the AWS bands that they support. There's a new There's a new band that, uh, that T-Mobile has been transitioning to, and they started supporting it within the last year, but the iPhone 8 does not support that. Right. It was it was the AWS LTE bands that started with iPhone 5, but we're only on the AT&T and T-Mobile iPhone. And so we're back to that right. problem again. These problems right. keep cropping up. So anyhow, the, the point of all that is these the wizardry that a company like Apple does and any other technology company, to be fair, has gotten us to a point where we just kind of <laughs> expect that things should work. And so it's so simple. And so, I mean, this is a guy who's the head of the FCC and you have the National Association of Broadcasters who, again, work in wireless frequencies. They created FM. They should know better. That just have this idea that it's like as simple as Apple just flipping a switch and up oh, now you got now you got the radio on your phone and it's like it, yeah, it doesn't yeah. work so, like that it doesn't work like that right so the iPhone five supported AWS bands for seven hundred megahertz and the the articles that you're talking about are the ones where T-Mobile switched on the six hundred yes, megahertz for the spectrum. iPhone eight specifically and yes. and as you say you yeah the iPhone eight doesn't support the six hundred megahertz spectrum because. Guess what? You can't yeah, just magically. Yeah, it's not a do software that. thing. It's a it's a an antenna issue. Yes, you need a new radio. So, this idea that you know Apple's going to turn on the reason that this came up to give you some background. We're talking about older iPhones. If you get a uh, iPad with LTE, it comes with GPS because the chip that they put in there includes LTE and GPS. If you get a Wi-Fi iPad, it doesn't have GPS, and and that's the reason for it. It's not that Apple really cares about GPS in the iPad. They they clearly don't. It's just that the chip comes with it. It's just the way it is. That's the, the same buy. reason that, like that if you turn off uh, Wi-Fi on your phone, Apple sends a prompt that says your um, uh, location data won't be as good because it affects because GPS has, relies on uh, uh, known Wi-Fi networks and other stuff to help it with the positioning data. So it's, it's, it's all complicated with the way that the chips work. But the point is this. Previously, chips in phones, including the iPhone, did include an FM radio. It was on there and it was disabled on the phone. The problem is, and what these people don't realize is, first of all, who knows if it was hooked up properly hardware-wise to even use the antenna bands or connect to the headphone jack like it did on the iPod Nano. But the problem is the iPhone 7 and 8 don't have that chip anymore. It's not even in there. So it's like based on old information and rumors and misunderstanding of technology. And as people just kind of crossing their arms and saying, hey, do this, you know, do a trick for me, make it happen. Yeah. And well... And the, the NAB, interestingly, so they, they of course, they referenced the iPod Nano as, as showing that it was possible, but they also referenced uh, teardowns, like the ones mm -hmm. that, that iFixit does, 
to cite that Apple is disabling the FM core deliberately <laughs> in a Broadcom chip. So it's it's misinformation and misunderstanding stacked on top of these things. But I was reading on Twitter Marco Arment, who who suggested I'm paraphrasing, but he would he was kind of morbidly curious to see the lightning dongle that Apple would ship just out of spite to make a, a dongle with an FM radio in it That's just to satisfy these complaints. Which is, of course, nuts. Even if they could somehow in the software take an iPhone 6S, which I guess is the last one to have the FM chip, and, and, and enable it. We don't even know if the antenna on the device is hooked up properly hardware-wise to to support FM radio. And it's probably not because it would have to connect to the headphone jack and, and use your headphones. I mean, it's like <laughs> no one's even thinking about this logically. It's just... <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of what ifs and and hypotheticals that would have to all fall in line for something that was never yeah, intended. When Apple it was buys these chips off the shelf from some company that's you know Qualcomm or whatever, and they include an FM radio on there because it's just easier for them to make stuff in bulk that way. It's just economies of scale. It's <laughs> it's not like Apple was buying FM chips and going, meh, we're not going to give this to you. Too bad. And like, <laughs> what kind of like messed up logic is that? It was like. We need a thing that's got all of the specs that we need. And by the way, it has this right. other thing in it that we're not going to use. And we're just not going to ever hook it up yep. because that's not the intention. But that's the chip exactly. we want that has everything else we need exactly. at the price we want to And it pay. probably costs... Yeah, like, as a consumer, have you ever bought something that was bundled with something else, even though right. you really only wanted part of it? Thank you. It was like uh, when I was going through and ripping all my DVDs this week, I had... Uh, Conan the Barbarian, and then it was a double-sided DVD. Remember those? And the other side was Conan the Destroyer. And it's like, well, nobody's buying this for Conan the Destroyer. They're just buying it for Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, it's like the the anthology of Blade <laughs> movies. No one is buying right. this for Blade 4. <laughs> now, in 2010, so we bring this up because besides the, the several calls for this to happen, in 2010, there was a push by NAB and RIAA to try and mandate that FM radio chips had to be included in smartphone devices. Now, of course, the National Association of Broadcasters likes this because, guess what? They're in the business mm. of sort of supporting broadcasting. And the RAA likes this because, guess what? They are in the business of protecting the recording industry. And so if they can have more broadcasts of more music and more people listening to broadcast music, then it and, and ASCAP are happy because they have more licensing and royalty. Radio numbers. is a dying medium and they want to save it. That's the translation. But but if we can protect it by yeah. legal mandate, <laughs> we yeah, can force you happen. to listen. You know what? Right? If they had That's, FM radio no. in, in the iPhone, I would I would be happy with that. I mean, what, what would you lose from that? What would be the problem from that, right? It's not like Apple has an incentive to not enable it or that they would like have some nefarious reason like, oh, this is going to cut into our iTunes sales. You know, these conspiracy theories and this stupid stuff, it's like, cut it out. This is, there's no reason for Apple to not do this. All right, so let's oh, shift God. gears to another conspiracy theory. There's a video rumored to show close-up images of Apple's Project <laughs> Titan testbed car. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a short clip, but it shows an assortment of cameras and radar units and LIDAR sensors. And it's, it's um, all situated it's on top expect. of the It's ugly. It's right a work in progress, function over form. Yeah, right. So... The question is, do you think that this is self-driving efforts for an Apple car, or is this self-driving efforts for Apple to sell it to someone else? You know, the, the latest rumors are that Apple has shifted its focus. It's no longer as interested in building the car. Uh, it's more interested in building the underlying technology, potentially as something for a ride-sharing service, uh, or at least to you know contribute to one. You think of their 
um, partnership with Didi Chuxinger, however you pronounce it, the Chinese company, um, that they sunk a billion dollars into. Um, and just today, before we started recording this on Thursday, uh, it was announced that uh, Google's parent company, Alphabet, has sunk a billion dollars into Lyft, which is the primary Uber competitor. So there's a lot of people in the technology space that, especially in more urban areas, see self-driving cars um, and ride-sharing services uh, replacing uh, motor vehicles for the vast majority of people and potentially becoming the new primary mode of tra- uh, public transportation. And, um, you know, I think it's wise for Apple to be investing in this space. And uh, I think that whatever they end up doing, it, whether they, whether they sell a car to consumers or they sell fleets or they just sell the brains, um, it's a space that they don't want to miss out on. I, I am intrigued because in, in years past, Apple has done a very bad job of supplying stuff as an OEM yeah. to another manufacturer. It's it's just not their fort, right? Their their attention is best on supplying mm-hmm. the whole thing to an end user. And they're happiest doing that because then they have full control of, of every part of it. They've made a change in that with CarPlay where they have gotten CarPlay in as an OEM into other people's stuff. But CarPlay is is primarily around software. You know, the, the CarPlay head units that are running it are based on Android or are based on um, the one that BlackBerry owns that I'm um, blanking on now. Three letters. Yes. Qnix. Qnix. Well, the Apple TV is dependent and, on others, yeah. too. I mean, you got to bring your own panel. Yes. Yes, you do. But they aren't selling it to anyone else to no. integrate where CarPlay is being sold and to integrate into yeah. Pioneer and, and all the others. And uh, that's it'll be interesting to see what direction Apple takes with yeah, this. I mean, if you want to get into some markets, you got to play the game. You know, the Motorola Rocker was not a hit in any way, but it existed for a reason. It was a tough market to get into, and Apple was still trying to figure out how to crack it. They knew it was a space that they wanted to be in, and they were doing what they could. So cars are uh, a very, very difficult business to break into, and they could theoretically sell their own aftermarket hardware to install, but it would be such a low margin, low sales business that they probably looked at it and said it's just not worth it. Yeah. Well, we do know that General Motors and Lyft and Uber and all of these are working on their own self-driving mm-hmm. hardware. It'll be interesting to see what Apple so, does to stand out from the uh, crowd. Definitely. I want to talk Surface Book all for right. a moment. Okay. So the Surface Book 2 is a sort of hybrid mm-hmm. tablet with a keyboard uh, and a hinge that it can disconnect from the keyboard. Now, obviously, when the keyboard is undocked, it's not Bluetooth, it doesn't communicate wirelessly, but it's essentially a laptop convertible kind of thing. And they have a 13-inch and a 15-inch model, and they are claiming, Microsoft is claiming, that this is five times more powerful than their original model and twice as powerful as a MacBook Pro. They're using 8th-gen Intel Core processors, they're using NVIDIA Discrete Graphics, They're, they're... doing a lot here yeah um the graphics cards in these new surface books are definitely better than the macbook pro um and the chips are faster too so what i mean they're they're a gt geforce gtx 1060 and they even have the graphics card in the um 13 inch model as well which apple does not do with their 13 inch macbook pro so you know i think uh, these may end up having more horsepower raw than, than a MacBook Pro. Certainly it would look that way on paper until 
they start shipping them and, and people can start testing them. We'll see. But um, whether or not it's twice as fast, I don't know. But yeah, it, I mean, it certainly could be. They, they look like nice hardware. I mean, this is Microsoft has done a pretty good job uh, in this space. They see a market for these convertible style devices. Um, Apple is obviously taking a different approach. Um, and there are pros and cons to that, certainly. Um, I am not particularly interested in having my computer act as a tablet. Um, I kind of like that they're separate platforms with their own purposes. Um, and I like that they integrate with each other well, and I wish that they integrated a little better. Um, but um, I don't know that I would want a thick tablet screen attached to my laptop, removable kind of thing. Um, you know, I, 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 I see why Microsoft's doing it. I see why it's appealing to some people. Um, but I also see why Apple's doing what they're doing. Yeah. Now, my thought, you know, I looked at this and, and you know, my first thought was, I wonder how good or bad this would be as a that Hackintosh. I mean, your touchscreen support on Mac OS would not be great, obviously. Well, it, it depends because if it addresses it as a Wacom tablet, mm -hmm. then it will work fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I commend Microsoft for... Uh, pursuing this and and finding a niche market that they can stand out in. Um, and I think that it's good for everybody. You know, Google just showed off some pretty quality hardware um, in the last couple of weeks too. So I think it's good for the industry and I think it's good for Apple to have that challenge coming, especially, you know, given the uh, space bar gate that has broken out this week about a, a speck of dust underneath uh, the space bar apparently. Uh, causing issues on the new MacBook Pro and how loud those keyboards are in the MacBook Pro and stuff. <laughs> we we may be Apple fans here, but I, I am not. Apple is not infallible. Do you, do you like Do you like the butterfly keyboard? No, I think it's loud. I I, I kind of hate it. Um, in terms of typing, it's fine, but it. I'm still on a 2015 uh, MacBook Pro. Um, no, I'm sorry, it's a 2014 MacBook Pro. Uh, yeah, it's the I'm first the one, one with the uh, Force Touch trackpad. And it, it's a nice machine. It's a 13 inch. I'm happy with it. Um, I want to get a new MacBook Pro. Um, I specifically am waiting for the external GPU support to get out of beta so that I can build kind of a desktop rig with a docking station. Um, I'm excited about that. Uh, but the keyboard itself, uh, I mean, for typing on, I think it's fine. The, the, the feel of it doesn't bother me or the key travel or any of that, but I really don't like how loud it is. And apparently it's problematic with anything getting under the keyboard. And as somebody who works from home and has the bad habit of many times eating over my keyboard, that concerns me. So, um, Gross. <laughs> Nasty. um, yeah, I'm, I think that Apple, um, has some work to do on that front. And so it's exciting to see, you know, I don't think that Google's going to sell a lot of these thousand dollar pixel books, I don't think Microsoft's going to sell a ton of these Surface books, but it's good to see companies investing in quality, investing in high-end stuff. Uh, I think that pushes the market forward. I think that the PC market is kind of finding its groove again after many, many years of, of uh, chasing the bottom and chasing low prices. And you're seeing the companies that have the deep pockets, the, the Googles and Apples and Microsofts, uh, really pushing quality and pushing uh, well-built hardware. And I think that, that that's ultimately a good thing. You know, I've long been a proponent of saying companies should be charging more for their stuff. You know, and, and that's a problem that we see most uh, seriously, I believe, 
on the App Store. Uh, you know, this push toward free and cheap software has cheapened everybody's feelings on these types of things and how much they're willing to pay for it. And quality suffers as a result. If everybody buys a $300 laptop and wants to pay nothing for their software, then nobody can make money and then we can't get better products. So seeing Microsoft selling a $2,000 convertible laptop made with good quality hardware uh, is not only good for Microsoft, it's good for consumers in the end, and it's good for uh, it's good for the industry as a whole. Now, one of the other things that we're looking at is Microsoft teasing the idea of ARM-based Windows laptops yeah. with multi-day battery life. This is something we've talked about in the context of a MacBook yeah. based on an ARM chip because Apple certainly has the ability to produce A11 or mm -hmm. A12 or whatever they want to call them, chips. And this is not the first experiment that Windows that Microsoft has done with ARM-based products, right? Some of the the early Surface tablets were um, Surface RT were yes. based on ARM chips, and Surface RT who, who and brands ran this a crap? Reduced <laughs> version of Windows. Now uh, you know. Let's let's uh, <laughs> naming is so hard. Product Surface naming is difficult. RT. Really what does is. that even mean? No, they listen. They named the first that when they redid the whole Windows interface for yeah. Windows Metro, 8, let's say that became Windows Ten. Except that they couldn't use that name any yeah. longer thanks to German courts. So yeah. naming is difficult because even if you can come up with a name that doesn't offend anyone and I isn't know. bothersome to yourself, right? RT bothers you. You can make isn't fun of it. Isn't that the name of the but Russian Metro was, was reasonably plain. station RT? Yeah. <laughs> Russia Today, yes. The if. But when when you come up with a name like Metro, it, it, it's yeah. a taken by someone else, right? So you either throw a lot of money at it to to take the name back, or you end up just saying the interface who shall Same not be reason named, Apple couldn't right? use ITV. It's it's a difficult thing. Yeah. Well, they could have simply that that was an easy one, right? They could have paid off the television station in Ireland. Yeah, it's in the UK. They're a big the station. UK. I don't think they. I don't think they, that they would have been. It would have been that easy. It wasn't like Cisco and the iPhone. The other use of ITV yeah. was the Elgato product. Yeah. Anyway, so what's interesting to me about the Microsoft idea is that Microsoft, for years, when they were pushing Windows Phone before they finally gave up on it, they were pushing people to be able to compile for right. multiple different architectures just by toggling switches in their applications. And if you were writing for something that was going to be published on the Microsoft App Store, then through just a couple of different switches, it would compile for all the different platforms yeah. and you could have it run on all of them. And that's really what was what was problematic about RT was that a lot of legacy software that people had did mm -hmm. not run on RT. That you had to run – and that, that was at a time where people were still bringing forward their yeah. Windows 7 applications and their, their mm -hmm. Win32s applications. And you had to go ahead and view the old desktop and run applications the old way. And – the idea is that if people can let go of their legacy applications that and, and use applications that have been compiled for the Microsoft Store, then the difference in architecture will matter a lot less. That you could run a full Windows 10 experience on an ARM chip and have all the software you need coming from the Microsoft Store mm -hmm. and not have a problem. And, and indeed, the article we ran has a quote that says that Microsoft is already testing hundreds of these devices used on a daily basis in, in Redmond. So it, it's possible that they could announce before the end of the year that there is such a product. I, th I think we talked about this a little but, last um, week. It's interesting that when you look at the computer, a traditional laptop, whatever, you know, keyboard, trackpad, the everything is basically moved to the cloud and the web. You have apps. You certainly use apps. But 
you know, somewhere 75 to 90% of what you do is in a browser. That's just the way that it is. And even if you uh, don't do it in a browser, you could do it in a browser. You may get your email through an email client. You may have a Twitter app or whatever, but you could still just go to gmail.com or go to twitter.com and get the same thing done. And it wouldn't be that much of a step back. And and you right. could use the Office 365 uh, apps. Whereas on tablets and phones, it's a very different experience. Um, more so on phones, but still significantly on tablets. It's really all about the apps. When when the iPad first came out, Facebook tried to say that they weren't even going to make a iPad app. They said, well, you can just get it through the browser. And that didn't work out very well for them. And then they had to make an iPad app. So um, it will be interesting to see how that works for Microsoft. I could see it being not that big of a deal. Because if you're using it in a laptop-style interface, most of the stuff being done on the web, um, certainly cheap Chromebooks have appealed to education markets, and Google's done very well in that segment. And I think, again, that reason is because the apps aren't as crucial. Um, and especially... Well, I think I think there the reason is that administration and management of them is well, vastly but simplified. Well, also cost. If you're the type of person who doesn't want to pay for Office, yes, and you're just going to use Google Docs, you don't care anyhow. You're, oh, yeah. You just want to get on a, a browser, right? But you, you don't have you, so your cost goes way down. Your cost of yeah. software and hardware goes way down. You don't have to set up and and buy and yeah. build up MDM setup, right? You don't have to do device management nearly as badly. And if someone breaks a device, you right. forget about it. That's it's a cost. You know, they, they it's chuck a it in the river, it doesn't thing matter. that is possible because something you couldn't have even done very well five years ago as well as you could do it now just because cloud storage and cloud services have gotten so much better. Web-based interfaces of things. Right. And, and so, you know, I envision a future where the same thing can be true of our phone devices. And when we're seeing that a little bit of that with the offloading of applications to the yeah. cloud just to save device storage and and downloading them again. I don't think the app interface kind of is going thing. anywhere on the phone though, I think. I, I don't think it is, but a lot of the resources behind those apps already live in the cloud. Right. So so we're, we're, we're sort of getting to that kind of right. future. Yeah, I, anyway. I agree with that. I, I think that um, I think ARM laptops are inevitable. I think that Microsoft uh, is right to pursue this. I think it will work out well for them. I think that Apple is pursuing it. I think that it will work out well for them. Uh, as I've said on here before, I see the transition being more gradual and uh, uh, a little more nuanced than the transition from PowerPC to Intel. Uh, I don't see this like... Apple quickly adopting 64-bit chips in their iOS devices. I don't see this like Touch ID making its way to all the devices. I don't see it in the way that they wanted to push those because there's still going to be a market for Intel Macs uh, just in terms of horsepower and people who prize horsepower and those capabilities over battery life. Well, it's it's also about the transition, right? When Surface RT launched, there was no emulation or path for people who wanted to run traditional Windows applications yeah. on a Surface RT tablet. And the the article that we've got here on, on our site suggests that there is a Win32's emulator, so that path is eased. When Apple migrated from PowerPC to Intel, there was the Rosetta emulator. When Apple em migrated from OS 9 to OS 10, there was the Classic Box, or the Blue Box as it was called, 
that allowed you to run OS 9 applications on OS 10. There's there's always been a migration path right. to help ease that transition. And that's what Microsoft mm-hmm. missed out yeah. on the last time they tried this stunt. And now that part is in place. With that part in place and the compiler there to make it easy for developers, it's something that seems like it's yeah, possible to pull I, off. I, this I agree with that. I, I think that the transition doesn't matter as much now for a number of reasons, um, including like we talked about with stuff being in the cloud. I think that you still have to offer some alternatives or some reason to switch. And I think that multi-day battery life on a laptop is a reason to switch. I think that that is, is a compelling enough agree. reason for people to say, nah, I don't really need that one app that I use occasionally that bad. There's something else that'll do it. Um, and I think that Apple is going to go through that same thing. And I think it's going to work well for them. I think that if you do a 12 inch MacBook with an arm chip and it gets you like 20 hours of battery life um, and is super thin and has a gorgeous display and uh, it runs, you know, all the Apple apps, it runs Mac OS and maybe it even runs in a windowed mode, uh, iPhone and iPad apps. Um, that would be pretty compelling. That would be a really, really, really exciting product. Um, and I think that if you offered that alongside a MacBook Pro and iMac and Mac Pro um, all running Intel chips, um, there would be a clear market for each of those. And I think that, that that would serve Apple well. I think that if Apple tried to switch their professional-grade devices to uh, arm chips, it probably would not go as well. I think that, I think that they have to have their hands in both, in, in both cookie jars, so to speak. If that, if that transition is going to succeed, it's not like the transition from power PC to Intel. It's not the same. I, I agree. And, and, you know, even when we say things that are, are the same, they're <laughs> never quite the same twice, right? There's always some new twist to it. He, and here's, uh, here's, a, I, here's one for you. Do you think that an ARM-based MacBook would be able to run bootcamp to run an ARM-based Windows 10? That should be completely right. technically possible. The thing that I would say is that there are certainly a bunch of different generations of ARM chip, um, and that it's... It's, it's it's one of those things where you'd, you'd have to be compiling like for like. I don't know that either thing. company would want it. I mean, I think that. Oh, I don't think anyone would want it. I'm just thinking from a technical, you know, at one point, at one, standpoint. At one point. Um, because at some point, if you can do that, then you can say, why can't I run Android on true. my, my yeah, ARM MacBook? Chrome OS. And, and that's, you know, that's not. I, you know, happen, I. Right? Uh, well, Chrome OS could happen because Chrome OS is, is based on Chromium yeah. OS, the open source product. And so, you know, anyone who can handle the bootloader problem can go ahead and compile whatever they want. Yeah, I, I, it's it's interesting to think about because at a time, and and I and I said that aloud without thinking that Android is somewhat. I mean, you could be hacked. Way, I don't know if you get official but, support, but eh, well, you wouldn't. But but so this is interesting because Chromium OS. There's a project out there that that Alphabet just invested in um, that exists solely to turn old laptops that have been, uh, you know bypassed by by obsolescence mm-hmm. into Chromebooks. And the idea is that for schools that don't have a large budget for computing, that they can get donated old laptops and turn them into Chromebooks. And, and Alphabet's put some money into this now. It's I, I, hmm. There was a time when boot camp on a Mac was a huge deal. I don't think that... 
Well, there was there was a bounty I, I for think it that before th- Apple. There made was it a official. time where it was a huge deal. I don't think it's a huge deal anymore, but I still think that it's essential for a certain market of people that need to run Windows apps. But I also think it's important from a psychological perspective for people to make that jump is difficult. And I know people that have done this that came over to a MacBook Pro or whatever, and they installed Windows on there because they felt comfortable. And then every time it was booting up and they had to select it, you know, and they were just like, eh, and they just started going with the Mac because it was easier. And then they it, it, it allowed that transition to happen. It made it easier for those people. And so it's interesting to think about because we certainly are not at a point where it's as crucial as it once was. Your apps are pretty much all available, um, you know, unless you're playing games or something. Um, yeah, provided yeah, and, and you know you can do parallels, stuff. you can do all that kind of stuff. But if you lose that ability, it's not as essential as it once was. So I could see a situation where Apple wouldn't mm, allow it on an ARM uh, MacBook, but I could also see a situation where because Microsoft is only selling its own ARM-based uh, notebooks with Windows and is not allowing third-party manufacturers to make them, there is no licensed copy of Windows for ARM to sell. It only comes on the device itself, and so they don't officially support it on, on competing hardware. You're right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, I, I was thinking about this. There was a, a time when there were Android handsets that you could mm-hmm. easily run Windows Phone on. And so the the good people over at one of the hacking sites, and I, I'm blanking on the name, but they're a nice group of people, were modifying the uh, the android mm-hmm. handsets to run windows phone and it's it's the kind of thing that the official support is comforting and without the official support it's it's sort of just something that's there that no one does the same way hackintosh is, yeah. is kind of a sort of thing still i i have android on my first gen iphone so there you go which you were one <laughs> I of the did few it just because i could <laughs> i never did that one so apple has looked at purchasing mm-hmm. a medical clinic startup the they were in talks to buy a company called Crossover Health. The the discussions apparently fell through. Um, but this this kind of thing shows that Apple is strongly a health health focused company. Now we know that already because they have the labs that they have on on site, and we know that they've worked along with other companies to develop the glucose sensor that works with Apple Watch that or at least is said to be working with Apple Watch. There's the third-party stuff that they've got where you can have the the uh, continuous monitoring glucosimeter. They are strongly focused on this. They began a partnership with Health Gorilla to bring centralized diagnostic data to Health Kit and Care Kit. So what, what do you have to think about them acquiring health companies? You know, they're collecting health data and, and making it available – for apps, for people to use for whatever purpose they see fit, where they want to lose weight, where they want to share with their doctor, where they want to do preventative care, whatever. Um, Apple is never going to get into the medical device business in a way that would raise the F, uh, uh, FDA's uh, attention. Uh, well, they're, they're working with the they're FDA. They're working with the FDA to they, make sure they that they don't get regulated by the FDA. No, no, no. They're they're They're... I, I was under the impression that they're working with the FDA on a fast track approval process so that approval and, and regulation are easier to comply. Yeah, with. I, I don't think that they're going to they're gonna through. get into serious medical devices. I think they want to create a platform where those devices can connect and can play nicely. And I think that allows them to avoid regulation and avoid scrutiny and avoid lawsuits and avoid the issues that come with it. Um, but it puts them in a position to 
allow medical device makers to uh, integrate with Apple devices and then save that data to the health app, um, which allows people to share it with their doctors, um, to see it for themselves, to do whatever. You know, there's a mystery process that goes on right now, right? Where you go to the doctor, they run the tests and they call you, they get the tests and they call you. Um, and th th a lot of that is kind of messed up when you think about it, because it's your health, it's your information, it's your data. You don't even know what your insurance companies share with each other when you switch insurance companies, what your doctor's offices share, whatever. And there's very strict rules about this stuff, HIPAA, you know, preventing that you can't mm, share information without consent and that sort of stuff. But it still feels like you're not really controlling the data. And I, so I think that Apple has a great opportunity here to really put power back in the hands of the consumer, of the individual, to control their health data and as they see fit and as they feel comfortable. Yes, that's true. Now, the, the FDA reported and uh, there was a report from last month, from September 26th, where the FDA had a fast track program that was created for nine technology companies to gain approval for features in their devices from the origination. So that included Samsung, Fitbit, Verily Life Science, which is part of Google, uh, Roche Holding AG. And it's, it's the pre-cert for software pilot. And the move was meant to allow companies to develop technology more rapidly while still having some government oversight over those projects. The idea was that they could get their products pre-cleared going forward rather than having to go through the FDA standard right. application and approval process. The idea being if you can pre-certify, then you can get your product and out, out to but the we're public talking a very, lot faster. We're talking very basic. You reduce your time and we're not going to diagnose cancer with something that, that Apple's making. This is just basic health and fitness tracking. No, no, but you know what? What a lot of the care kit kind of studies have been about is if we can recognize early signs with our devices, with the watch, with the phone, with geolocation, with air quality. Can we recognize what triggers are and prevent right. symptoms before they begin? Right, and so. It's, it's not about the cure for cancer, but it is about what can we do to prevent your right. kid from but having an asthma we're still talking attack. about basic health and fitness tracking capabilities. Um, I don't think that you're going to see Apple get into more advanced medical devices. Uh, I think that they're going to make sure that their platforms play nicely with those devices in the case that they are needed. Right. Al although we have that report that says they were working on their that. own glucosimeter. You That's talk fine. about that a lot and it never came to me. I don't believe it. Well, we, we talked about it a lot, and then we saw the third-party one. So the possibility is that That's we were talking is, about yeah. the third-party one all along. But you, you got to believe that they have R&D for health going on that's more deep than just what can we do yeah, with but the sensors that we have. Medical regulatory requirements are a, to use a Steve Jobs term, bag of hurt that Apple does not want to touch. So, Yeah. They, they, well, they are, but that's the Apple that said that's not, not the same but Apple. But I still don't either. see them going down that road. Now, I don't, I don't believe that they're going to go the route of GE. We don't, I don't expect them to see them make an no. Apple-branded MRI machine, right? But uh, You better hope the keyboard works I, on that. I think that – oh, well, that was the, the old uh, Therac 25 problem. Yeah. I've told that story here before, haven't I? <laughs> okay. Then I'll skip it for everyone's, uh, everyone's sake. Sure. You want to move on? We've talked about this one a while. Okay. Let's, let's talk about Wi-Fi. What, what, what Wi-Fi router are you using? Airport Extreme. Ah, okay. I uh, the the Airport Extreme is said to be one of the routers that that Apple said is simply not affected by the crack Wi-Fi yeah. WPA2 attack vector. And my Airport Extreme that I have in my house is ten years old. It's from two thousand seven, 
And so I, I didn't connect that one again and use it. I, uh, I went round robin checking all the routers that I have here to see which ones had updates. And so I, I had a TP link that has not gotten updates and probably will not get updates unless I do something like flash it with W with DDWRT, which is an open source router firmware. Uh, I, I tomato, for example, or open WRT. I, I don't recommend anyone do those unless they're prepared to get into the nitty gritty of what networking can be like. It's, it's a nightmare. It's, it's you, you can, it, it can be, I mean, when all of the options are exposed, it can be overwhelming. They can do a whole lot of things. It can be easy if you just try and stay on the surface of what you know, but if you try and set up anything more esoteric, they can be difficult. You need to go to school for that kind of thing almost. Um, so I had the TP link, which I took out of service because it wasn't getting updates. And I went to the uh, Amplify HD, which is a mesh-based routing system that I have here for review. Because one of the things that we've been doing is running a series of, of Wi-Fi router reviews based on the lack of availability of airport extreme updates. So the Amplify system was very cool. It set up really fast and it had the updates that patched this attack vector, but it didn't have a whole lot of flexibility in terms of other features that I, I mm -hmm. wanted for managing my local network. You know, one of the things that I do is I, uh, I run a DNS server locally that filters out, um, some ad networks and some malware sites and some JavaScript. It, it just basically filters things so that that malicious stuff doesn't come into my browser. And the Amplify did not have an option to allow me to specify that local DNS server to clients getting an address from it. A little. Which is a little unusual. I mean, I understand what they're doing. They're trying to make the very simplest product they can, but they uh, they neglected to put that option in when you're setting up what range of, mm -hmm. of DHCP addresses will be assigned to clients. And so I took that out of service and I put in a Synology router. Now Synology is well known for making their disk stations, yeah. the, uh, the network attached storage devices. And so their router product is one they started making a couple of years ago and they, they updated it uh, this year and they sent me their updated version. The updated version is basically running the same software that you get on a disk station, except that the disks aren't present. Now you can connect disks using USB three or an SD card slot or, you know, a number of different options they have on the thing and, and use it like a network attached storage device, but it's got all the routing stuff built into it. And coincidentally, I have one of their disk stations and I checked it out and the disk station allows you to use it as a Wi-Fi router. If you add a uh, Wi-Fi adapter to it. So it's yeah, kind of cool. like either direction on this thing. It is. And the things that I found with theirs is that it takes an actual <laughs> five minutes for it to reboot from a cold boot. If you do the firmware update on it, it takes a full 10 minutes, which is a little absurd for Wi-Fi routers comparatively. But, but yeah, well, I'm, I could, I could say it's very absurd, but it, uh, other, other than that, it works really well. It's rock solid. It has all the options you need, but it's presented in a way that's approachable. So they've, they've really accomplished something good there. Um, uh, also coming in this week is D-Link's new version. And D-Link said that just, just as Synology did, Synology never bothered to try and address the mesh networking need. They just stuck uh, 5 antennae on the product. So D-Link sent me an email and said that they've got one they'd like us to take a look at. And theirs is going to have a large number of antennas, and they're calling it something like the Power Center 6000 or, or, or something equally impressive, right? And, uh, and theirs says 
their their pitch was, we aren't going to do a mesh to try and overcome all of these things. We're just going to bathe the whole house in really strong signal. Okay, we'll take a look. But the the point of this is that the crack attack is an exploit in Wi-Fi WPA2 passwords, and that applies to not just the routers, but also all of the client devices. And as far as Apple goes, all of the client devices are being addressed in developer betas right now. So the release that fixes this problem and this vulnerability mm-hmm. should be out very soon. I don't see this affecting most people. Just don't use public Wi-Fi networks. Um, wait for your devices to be updated and you'll be fine. Well, right. Don't use public Wi-Fi networks. If you have a VPN service, use their VPN service. Um, you know, you, you, you want to be cautious about using Wi-Fi's that aren't yours, Wi-Fi routers that aren't yours, you should be aware of people, you know, sniffing your Wi-Fi because that's it. But, you know, unless there's a van parked outside your house with antennas yeah. pointed at it, you're probably okay. The The, the question is, are, are vulnerabilities practical? And the answer is they're practical at some measure for some right. people, and you don't want to be that person. You know, it, it's probably unlikely for for some people, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. It's a pretty you big vulnerability. It's a pretty big deal. And, and make sure your devices are up to date and just use common practices of don't connect to public Wi-Fi networks. Don't, you know, and you'll be all right. Yeah. And this should serve as another reminder that uh, Apple needs to get back into the router business. Well, so part of this vulnerability was that this this the eight hundred two eleven R part, mm. which is the the fast roaming support, which is if you have a mesh network, for example, you want to be associated with the base that's close to you, right. not the base that's furthest away from you. You don't want to hold on to the one when you've got weak signal. You want to switch over to this. So this fast switching protocol allows for that. And if you've got a mesh network system, whether that's a Netgear, a Linksys, an Eero, uh, an Amplify, any one of the ones that we've tested. Um, have that update. Do that. Um, you 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 should go ahead and patch Absolutely. them if there's a patch available. Keep your routers up to date, people. Yes. Now, Neil, we, we talked about this a little bit last time when we talked about Movies Anywhere and the announcement of it's being released. You've had a chance to use it. So Movies so Anywhere me. is pretty cool. Um, basically, this is the studios wrestling some control away from individual movie sellers. So uh, four big services that they've partnered with are Apple's iTunes, Amazon, uh, Google Play, and Walmart's Vudu, V-U-D-U. Um, so from a basic functional perspective, what this does is it syncs your purchases with all platforms. So if you, for example, own a few iTunes movies, but you have a, for some reason, Amazon tablet, and you would like to access your iTunes movies on your Amazon tablet, you couldn't do that before. But now if you link up your accounts with Movies Anywhere, which was created by Disney, but now is a partnership between five studios, the participating studios movies will now show up as Amazon purchases, and it just works. And uh, it's awesome. It's consumer-friendly. It means that you could uh, buy a movie uh, on sale at, at Amazon or iTunes and have it show up on the other service. And it means that if you have your movies in a bunch of different locations, now you can just consolidate them all in one. So, for example, if you have an Apple TV, you don't have to install the Vudu app um, and you don't have to wait for Amazon Video to get to your Apple TV to just start watching stuff. You can just get it all on iTunes. So 
a new wrinkle in this, though, and what makes it uh, even more exciting was uh, something that I didn't realize until one of our listeners on the podcast tweeted me, a guy named Joe, a very nice guy, who said that he's been using Voodoo for a few years. And Voodoo has a service that um, I, I kind of knew about in the periphery but never really thought about in a meaningful way because I just have always been on iTunes. Um, they have a thing called Disk to Digital. So it started out where you had to bring your disks into a Walmart store, but then they expanded it to being able to put the disk into your computer and then eventually just scanning the barcode of a disk that you own on your phone. Uh, the first thing that pops in everybody's mind is how do you not go into a Best Buy and scan it all? Well, it requires location data. I was about to ask. It requires location data and it matches that with your credit card and address on file and make sure you're at home. And what it does is it allows you to go through and scan your DVD slash Blu-ray library. And if it's a compatible film and if it's a, a part of the service and didn't come with its own digital code and whatever, um, a lot of older Blu-rays and older DVDs, which didn't come with them, are compatible. Um, you can pay $2 to get a digital copy of a Blu-ray in HD. You can pay $2 to get a standard F copy of a DVD uh, on Vudu. And you can pay $5 to upgrade a standard F DVD to an HD copy on Vudu. And because... So it's it's $2 for like for like and then $5 yeah. to do it And better. so because Vudu is part of Movies Anywhere, that means that if a movie can be scanned by Vudu and if it's a participating studio in Movies Anywhere, your scanned purchases will then show up in iTunes. So you can now, this is a legal, uh, totally acceptable way for you to take your legacy DVD and Blu-ray collection, scan it into iTunes and have it work streaming, downloading, whatever you want to do with it. So this is very exciting for me. So how much how much money did you spend? A lot, uh, probably about 150 bucks, I think. Um, that was just getting all the movies that I own that could be scanned. There are some that's just wouldn't scan, aren't compatible, whatever. Um, I, a few years ago, um, was traveling, um, around uh, for work and stuff. And so what I was doing was, uh, I ripped every DVD and Blu-ray that I own. I got a Blu-ray drive for my Mac and I, it took me forever. And I went through and I ripped every single movie in my collection. And I put them all in a Dropbox in the cloud. And that allowed me to access my movies whenever I wanted and have to bring a hard drive and have to worry about plugging it in. It was just much easier and much more convenient for me that way. And I liked it, but I still would rather have digital copies. And as I've talked about here on the podcast many times, I only buy Blu-rays if they come with a digital copy so that I can get it in iTunes. I don't do ultraviolet. If it has, it'll just buy it on iTunes. I just, and, and the reason for that is I prefer the physical disc because I don't want to have to worry about buffering and streaming and whatever. And if at home, it's easy to just pop in the disc. But I still, a lot of times, watch movies when I'm on an airplane or just it's more convenient sometimes to just stream it. And so um, I like having the best of both worlds. I want to have that quality of the physical disc and I want to be able to stream it or download it when I want. And having it on Dropbox was a way of solving that, but it was still a process because I would have to download the file from Dropbox plug in my iPad to iTunes on my Mac, transfer the file over. It was, a, it was a big pain in the butt. So this kind of cuts out some of those steps and just has them in the cloud on iTunes. Now, again, the caveats that you have to take here is if it's not a participating studio, it's not going to work. So 
some of the films that I scanned that were accepted by Vudu and are now in my Vudu locker are not showing up on iTunes because those studios don't participate in the Movies Anywhere program. But if they do participate in Movies Anywhere and you scan it into Vudu, it works great. It shows up on iTunes. Um, you get the HD copy of the film. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't get any of them to stream in 4K. They only transfer over in HD, but still as good as quality as the Blu-ray. So I scanned in... An example, Pacific Rim, didn't come with a digital copy, scanned it because I own the Blu-ray, showed up in Vudu, synced through movies anywhere instantly, didn't have to do anything, it was already set up. Go to my Apple TV, there is Pacific Rim, now in my iTunes collection. Um, when I started streaming, when you open it up, it says it's a 4K movie, so I got excited. But then when you start streaming, and you can scroll down uh, with the, the touchpad and see the quality that's streaming in, it only streamed it in HD. So it's a 4K movie on iTunes, only letting me stream in HD after transferring over from Vudu, but that's still equivalent quality to what I would have gotten on the Blu-ray anyhow. So um, pretty happy. For $2, now I have the digital copy, I can do whatever I want with it. And this is only going to get better as more studios decide to participate in movies anywhere. And one of the concerns I saw was somebody said, what happens if Movies Anywhere shuts down or the studios stop participating or whatever? Uh, does your, uh, or let's say Voodoo goes out of business or something, does that affect what's in your iTunes account? And somebody in the comments said that they actually tried unlinking Movies Anywhere and the movies remained in their iTunes account. So I'd say that's a pretty good sign that no matter what happens going forward, once you confirm to Apple that you own that movie and as part of your iTunes account, you're kind of locked in. So fingers crossed that's the way that it works. Uh, pretty exciting. Very, very, very cool. And this this really gives a good use for Vudu, which yeah. for years has been, well, sort of a, a third tier kind of player for some of this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there is a limit on, um, you can only scan in 100 movies per year. Um, I scanned in my whole collection and did not hit 100 movies. So uh, for those of you out there that that have a giant uh, DVD collection, you may run into that problem, but I, I think that's a reasonable number. I think that's okay. Very cool. So you don't even have to load the Voodoo app. You're, you're doing just fine with- Yep, uh, all through iTunes. There are a handful of movies that I scanned in that are not movies anywhere. And so what's nice about that is there is a Voodoo app, not only for iOS, but for tvOS. So you can still stream it anyhow. You just gotta go to the other app. But as you said, hopefully those studios come on board and then eventually I don't even have to worry about that. And Vood what does Voodoo care? They got my money. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they're they happiest when you're renting movies from them. That well, was their yeah. original plan. But, yeah. uh, but they, they, they're, not, they're not using any of the bandwidth to stream it to me either. So here, here. Tell me about Senator Al Franken. Um, when Face ID was announced, uh, Senator Al Franken, who's one of the more tech-savvy uh, people in Congress um, issued a series of questions to Apple asking how it works. It may sound dumb to people that read Apple Insider because they know Apple's uh, uh, reputation on security and about the secure enclave and all that. But, you know, a little bit of po politician grandstanding, but for a good cause. I think that any politician should be should, has a right to be skeptical of, uh, you know, how a business is going to be using uh, that kind of personal information, especially this day and age when uh, data leaks and, and other things that are going on. So he issued a series of questions to Apple and Apple probably just sent him a link back and said, hey, check out apple.com. <laughs> but uh, then he issued a statement um, uh, giving Apple praise and saying that he appreciated the steps that they were taking for security and face ID. So I, I think it's a win for everybody. I think it was a a little bit of a political maneuvering there to uh, show that he was somebody who was paying attention to a hot issue. 
Um, and I, I think that he had a reasonable response to it. So no harm, no foul. The thing here is is not just that he got the reasonable response, but you know there are people who are uncomfortable with face ID. Right. There there are people who are not necessarily our listener or our reader who are not as well informed, and who hear that you know USA Today says that Apple's doing facial recognition, and that alone is kind of scary. Uh, I was I was shopping. I was paying with Apple Pay, and the one behind me said, "I'm afraid of the new one. The, the new what? I'm afraid of the new one that uses your face." Okay, so yeah, it's, it's that's totally going to be a problem for Apple to overcome, this. and that's why the legacy and large lineup of quality phones that they offer. You want a headphone jack? You want a home button? You want a fingerprint scanner? You still got options. There you go. Progress takes time. Bungie has a game called Destiny Two. And Destiny 2 is not coming to the Mac or the iPad, right? No. So how are you playing us on an iPad? So this is a pretty cool app that we stumbled across and Mike wrote about it for us. And I tested it out a little bit too. Um, there is a capability on Sony's PlayStation 4 um, that was originally created for the PlayStation Vita, which is their basically now dead uh, mobile uh, device, which allowed you to take games from your PlayStation 4 and stream them over your local Wi-Fi or even over LTE if you're if you want to get on cellular um, to uh, PlayStation Vita. The, the Vita didn't catch on, but the technology behind remote play remains. And so, uh, Sony has done it in a few official ways. There is an official app that allows you to stream from your PS4 to your Mac, for example. Um, but for some people, you know, it may be more convenient to have it on a phone or on an iPad or, or, or something like that. And so this is a pretty cool app that uses the official um, Sony Remote Play protocol, and it allows you to stream anything from your PlayStation 4, um, including Destiny 2, which is probably the biggest game out right now. Um, you know, uh, upcoming games like uh, Call of Duty World War II, stuff like that, uh, the latest Uncharted game, whatever's coming to, to PlayStation this fall. Um, it allows you to stream from uh, PlayStation to your iPad, but not only does it allow you to stream to iOS devices, but it's also compatible with Apple's made-for-iPhone gaming controllers. Okay. So you can actually use a physical controller, connect like, it to... Like my SteelSeries Nimbus? Like your SteelSeries Nimbus, wow. connect it to um, your iPad, and then start playing. Now, there are limitations, uh, the most serious being that Apple's spec for made for iPhone controllers does not have clickable thumbsticks. So it depends on the game you're playing. Some games don't really use the clickable thumbsticks at all. Uh, a game like Destiny 2 uses, I believe, the left stick for running and the right stick for zooming. So <clears throat> some players may find issues with that. There are uh, button combo things that you can do to bind to to mimic that. Um, Sony itself ran into the same problem with the, um, uh, the PlayStation Vita because it only has two shoulder buttons, not four. And so they had to mimic the shoulder buttons by using the touchpad on the back of the device. So uh, th this is a limitation. Uh, you're certainly probably a lot of these games not going to want to play them with the touchscreen controls that are offered through this RPlay app. But yeah, uh, it's on the App Store. I think it costs uh, 12 bucks. It's called R-Play, um, and it allows you to stream games from your PlayStation 4. If you have a PS4 Pro, it streams it in 1080p. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it, it works. It's cool. It works with your made-for-iPhone controllers. And if you want to play a uh, 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 PlayStation 4 game in another room, or if you want to even play it on the go, it works. Brilliant. 
All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Please, please be like Joe. Talk to us via Twitter. Tell us the feedback because we love to hear it. We love to be able to reference it in the stories. And uh, it's helpful. It really is. Yeah. We appreciate it. if you it. haven't yet, check out the Apple Insider app and leave us a review on iTunes for that. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can uh, read my stuff on appleinsider.com or in the app. And if you install the app, you can get push notifications for all breaking news related to Apple. And if you got questions or comments or you just want to tell me how much you hate me, you can find me on Twitter at this is Neil N-E-I-L. Neil, target of hate, everyone. <laughs> I can take it. Bring it on. And I'm Victor, and I am online also, and we will see you next week. <laughs>